Welcome to the Swampflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. Hey, I'm Allie. And we are recording over the internet. This is Halloween week. This is our Halloween special. Nothing that special. We're just doing a normal thing. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, the movie does have Halloween in it. Yes, there's a Halloween party, which uh, made me very excited to see. Have you been watching any spooky movies in the lead up besides the main topic of conversation today? I certainly have. I think um, when this goes out, my reviews of previously discussed Till Death and one other thing will have been published, as well as my review of this year's We Need to Do Something, which I just watched within the past week and found it to be very good. It's got uh, Vanessa Shaw, who was in Clinical, which was a surprise favorite of mine a couple of years ago, Um, but she's most memorable, or she's most well-known, I guess, for being the love interest in Hocus Pocus. She and her husband and her daughter, who is the lead character, as well as their extremely annoying son, are trapped in a bathroom. Like there's a, you know, tornado warning. They take shelter in an interior bathroom. And then a tree falls through the house and sort of pins the door shut. So they can only open it about five or six inches or about 10 to 12 centimeters for our listeners outside of the Empire. And then things just keep getting worse and worse. And there seems to be sort of the implication very early on that something potentially supernatural is happening. The girl believes that, you know, she's, she's texting with her, as we later find out, girlfriend saying, oh, do you think that this has something to do with? And then we don't see what she would have typed because the, uh, the t- tornado warnings coming in over the phone continue to sort of interrupt her attempts to reach this uh, girlfriend of hers it's gotten really negative reviews both like critically and among the middling folk but i thought it was great i really enjoyed it it was extremely tense it was particularly tense if you are someone who <laughs> is a survivor of abuse because i mean as soon as they get in there you know, mom's getting phone calls and declining them. And, you know, when asked, she's like, oh, it's nobody, it's nothing. While dad, like, has this vice grip on a thermos. So you're like, I mean, it's very quick, efficient storytelling as far as, like, obviously he's a drunk. Obviously, you know, she's been cheating. But yeah, it gets extremely tense. And the worst things about it are the attempts to explain why they are in the situation because it involves um, flashbacks to the daughter character and her girlfriend doing like some extremely (laughs) extremely basic teenage witchcraft you know like (laughs) love it we sort of get an explanation that the girlfriend has maybe like a spirit or something inside of her because she cast like a spell on herself whenever she was dealing with cotard syndrome which is the Uh, mental illness where you believe yourself to be dead but because of that maybe she actually brought something to life (laughs) um and then whenever she was doing her stupid teenage witchcraft bullshit you know carving things on candles putting cotton balls in jars of water and sealing them up like that kind of dumb bullshit somehow it it actually was powerful which you know who cares Uh, honestly (laughs) the film is better without any explanation of why and it would be 
you know, even shorter as well. But, you know, I'm not reviewing the film that we wish we got. We're reviewing the film that we have. And even then, it's still pretty great. But I would have bumped it up a star if we had not had those reasons. If it was just people completely losing their minds and having bizarre hallucinations and and slowly dehydrating and, and starving and, you know, dealing with even like wild animals getting into the house, uh, including a rattlesnake at one point that gets into the bathroom with them. So it's really tense. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it sounds like the flashbacks, even if they were done better, would still break that tension of being trapped in there as well, which I, I could see how that is just completely unnecessary, kind of shooting yourself in the foot. They managed to do some of them pretty interestingly in the sense that like, you know, sometimes what starts out as a flashback will turn into like a horrible hallucination, like a nightmare, and then the character will wake up. So it it's it's doing something interesting where it's, you know, telling these flashbacks through the narrative while still including horror elements. But again, I think that the film overall would be stronger with less or even none of that. I do have a quick question, too, because I remember reading either in that review or in Things Heard and Seen, which you also reviewed on the website this week. Yes. You were talking about how there's just like a gulf of like content in the middle of like the conjuring big budget horror and like the A24 kind of like quote unquote elevated horror. Right. Where like everything in the middle just sort of like gets dismissed as being not worth anyone's time. Yes. I thought it was an interesting idea because I don't know if I've heard anyone express that before. You know, you have your A24, you know, mega fans who think very poorly of The Conjuring and, you know, all of its various imitators and peers, you know, whether it be what's what's that series of movies that's all just uh, night camera footage. Are you talking about oh, paranormal, paranormal activity? activity? Conjuring, paranormal activity, um, insidious, sinister. insidious, sinister. Uh, remind me what your thoughts were on Oculus, Brandon. I really liked it. Yeah, I thought that was a good, and I, I guess that is kind of what you're saying. That's like the middle ground where it's like, yeah, it's stylish because it's got that Mike Flanagan patina to it, even though he wasn't given the budgets that he's working with now at the time. Right. Uh, but it was like kind of an under the radar thing where no one was really talking about it for the first like three or four years. And it has like a better reputation now that he's made more of a name for himself. I saw that one in theaters and I remember being so excited when I saw it because even though I didn't think it was amazing, I didn't think that it was the greatest thing I had ever seen. It was the first time because in 2013, A24 hadn't really cornered that market yet. And we had just had all of the glut of the Halloween remake and the Nightmare on Elm Street remake and, you know, the sequel to the Halloween remake and the House of Wax reboot, you know, and there was another Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was really kind of coming out of the end of the dark age of the aughts to early 2010s reboot mania. And it was original and I liked it a lot. Even though what I liked most about it is what it said about the potential for us to start seeing good indie horror again. And I feel that way about Things Heard and Seen. I felt that way about What Lies Below that came out earlier this year uh, that we talked about, but I don't think I ever did copy on. But that was the one with uh, Mina Savari as the mother whose daughter slowly comes to realize that mom's new boyfriend might actually be like a an alien monster. Yeah, Brittany liked that one as well. It was really good. And that one also 
was a huge critical and like uh, mainstream, you know, armchair critic flop. And it really, (laughs) you know, of all the things that the internet has democratized, film criticism is one of the things that has suffered the most, I think. I was going to say the thing that really confuses me about that middle ground material is like, I don't know what to pay attention to because there's more of it being made than ever before. Right. Um, through all these, especially the, all the straight to streaming stuff. Yeah. And if you follow too many professional or like lower professional horror critics, their job is to hype up and cheerlead every single one of these projects. Right. So every single week there's some new movie to get excited about. If you are plugged into like, I don't know, like Dread Central or Bloody Disgusting or, you know, one of these horror people. Like if you follow too many of them on Twitter every week, the best thing ever just came out on streaming and no one's talking about it. But then you watch most of it. And of course, most of it is mediocre because that's just how all art is. So like I find it difficult to parse out which of those things to pay attention to. So like I I never know what the new Oculus is until I watch like 10 movies and then one of them is like pretty great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a big, big risk. You know, it's a big uh, time investment. The the only fourth option is to have something like the toll that no one, no one sees, but me and 12 other people, uh, <laughs> despite it being really great. I also wanted to say, uh, this is uh, not really spooky, but I find, and this is actually also not technically a movie, but since it's 10, 10 minute episodes, I'm going to call it one. I finally saw Over the Garden Wall. <gasps> yes! Rewatch it every year. Yeah, that's what I do every year. The very first night that it was cool enough to make hot chocolate, Matt had me watch it. And I we watched the first five, and then we watched the last five like the next night, and I did really enjoy it. Uh, I can definitely see it becoming like a fall like a perennial fall favorite of mine as well. Oh, it's so good. I, me and my niece, we have just moments where we just want to watch it and it'll be, you know, middle of August. So, (laughs) you know, I at least watch it once a year. I'm in the middle of my annual rewatch right now. We stretch it out in the couple weeks leading up to Halloween. We're like, how close could we get so we can watch like one or two episodes a day and not run out of any before Halloween night? Oh, that's a good plan. Yeah. How rare for something to get a full ringing endorsement from all three of us. Not even one of us is like, yeah, it was good, not great. No, it's great. It's not even a rock fact. (laughs) There was another one that I've watched that I thought about doing copy on. and But because it came out a few years ago, I went and checked and I was like, "Mm, it probably has already been written about. And it was, but that was 2017's Ghost Stories. I enjoy that movie, and um, a lot of people are very offended by the prank it pulls uh, in its final reveal. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was very great. I loved it. I mean, it does that thing I like, right? (laughs) Um, But I won't say too much, because I don't want to spoil it or give too much away, because it definitely um, is worth a watch. But it does follow a storytelling cliché. That's on the level of like a deus ex machina. Like it's it's that much of an ancient <laughs> idea. But I think that it's actually really effective in the way that it pulls that off. And the way that the seeds for that final reveal are planted all the way through. Enough that you enough that you sort of catch that there's something weird going on very early on. Like when um our main character first pulls up to uh this location where there are three garage doors and they have these numbers on them 
the next time you see those numbers, you already know that there's something going on that you're not 100% clear on. And so it does give you all the clues sort of all along to figure out what the rug is that it's going to pull out from under you. But I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I like when the protagonist will just stop and pause and stare at like a plastic bag rolling by or something. You're like, why is he fixated on that? But those moments make you like feel really tingly. Like just something's like off about this like version of reality we're watching. Yes. And I really like the structure too. I feel like this would be a great type of anthology film if people could make it more often where you have like one character. In this case, he's what he's what like a skeptic that's trying to like disprove ghost stories. Yes. Like a paranormal investigator. Where you have one character entering these different vignettes um, as like the tie-in. Um, instead mm-hmm. of actually having like a wraparound, it's like one continuous story that just happens to be episodic. Um, I think that's a great structure for like a modern anthology film. Yeah. So I think I thought it worked on that level as well. Last time that we were all together, I talked about how I had watched Scare Packages because I was looking for, I really just love anthology horror films and how that one was mostly a disappointment. Uh, This gave me exactly what I wanted. And then the last thing that I saw other than, well, I've seen like half of a couple of things that I'm waiting to finish with friends. So even though our next recording will be after Halloween, I'll still have some spooky holdovers. The only one that I do want to go ahead and say right uh, now and outright, even though I haven't finished it, is, Brandon, you were completely right. The Elvira movie is a delight. Hell yeah. <laughs> really, really enjoying watching that. But I, we've watched it in two segments so far. It just keeps, you know, it's just been that part of the season where everybody's doing midterms and also going to spooky parties and everything. So getting everybody together to watch it has been a little bit of a pain. But I will have full thoughts on Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, next time we talk. It's kind of like a sitcom, too. Like, you could probably just watch it as if it's, like, episodes of a TV show and not miss, like, any kind of momentum or anything. I will say the finale is jaw-dropping. Like, the last five minutes are so fun, and you just walk away thinking, like, what an entertainer. Uh, So, it'll leave you all on a high note as far as, like, capping off the Halloween season. And honestly, that marathon she did for... Shutter, where we watched, you know, her movie and then the other three ones she was hosting, was the best like sit down horror movie experience I've had all season as well. Nice. Yeah, Elvira has been like the thing on the top of my mind all month. I love her. I love her. She's seventy. Did you know that? And she looks yeah. amazing. She looks amazing. <laughs> she does. Like it's not. It's not just about that, obviously. But holy shit. She looks better than I do now, and I'm only right. <laughs> the cameras are in HD now. Yeah. So, like, she has to be more flawless now than she was, like, 40, 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she's doing perfectly well. She looks flawless. But the, the last spooky movie that I have seen uh, in full, you may remember a couple of years ago me writing about On the Silver Glow, directed by yeah. Andre... Zhuwowski, I have now seen Possession. Oh, masterpiece. From 1980, 1981. Wow. What a fucking movie. I think it was the first movie I felt confident enough to rate five stars when we started reviewing stuff in 2015. It's truly, truly a piece of madness. It is dark magic. Like, that it was banned for so long is honestly not a surprise. It's It's possibly one of the most horrifying soul-crushing horrific things that i have ever seen 
Uh, Allie, are are you familiar? No, can't say I am. You would love it. I'm probably if what y'all are saying about it. I think I would. It's got Sam Neill at his twinkiest. He's the twinkiest <laughs> you've ever seen him in this movie. It's got Euro art house horror. Do love that. Just dripping all over it. Isabella and Johnny, probably the greatest screen performance of all time. I don't know. At least the most committed. She fully throws herself into that. She seems possessed. There are moments on screen where you are just, she is, she is giving the most fearless performance I have ever seen in my entire life. And it's a darkly funny movie about divorce. (laughs) As fucked up and as soul rattling and like skin crawly as it is. It's really funny. Just about like how divorce like tears you apart on a cellular level. And I know it's unusual for me to like something like this, not just be- not because it's the greatest, you know, cinema or whatever. I always love great cinema. Or, I don't know, maybe not. But normally, you know, if there's like one character in a movie who talks like the characters in this one, it drives me nuts. But everyone, every single person is just so full of they're so histrionic and they're so full of life and they're so full of madness there's not a person who appears on screen who just talks like a normal person every single person talks like they're reading directly from like a norton (laughs) critical edition of something like a norton (laughs) anthology of like literary (laughs) criticism there's dialogue that I didn't understand. There was dialogue that I couldn't even hear. But honestly, I'm not even sure how much, if any of it, was important because that's not the point. It's just about how divorce makes you completely insane and yeah. also harrowing things that can happen to you when you're alone. Like what happens to her in that subway tunnel, which is just five or six minutes of just unbroken, unrelenting, almost inhuman horror where is she even bleeding from (laughs) and then mixing with the milk oh my god oh my god uh so actually that scene was my introduction to the film in isolation because uh i don't know if it was official but the crystal castles video yeah yeah. and i was like (laughs) i have to watch that immediately and it got to the library uh because it was really hard to get for a long time like you had to see it on physical media that was like way out of print and i just happened to be able to get a library copy and right now there's like a 4K restoration that's touring theatrically. Yeah, it's currently showing at the Austin Film Society Cinema, which is not where I saw it. But when I went to look it up and I just, you know, type in Possession 1981, it popped up as being at the Austin Film Society Cinema right now. So if you're listening to this and you live in Austin, which I may or may not live in, don't dox me, you should check it out. It's also playing at the Broad Street Theater in New Orleans, and I can't imagine it's going to last much longer. So definitely worth seeing. Um, but yeah, ghost stories, we need to do something over the garden wall possession. I'm going to go ahead and tentatively give a big recommendation to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, even <laughs> though I haven't finished it. And I'm also going to give a recommendation once again to um, Things Heard and Seen. We talked about it. I talked about it briefly the first time I saw it. We talked about it briefly again, not very long ago, and I finally got copy to you on it, Brandon, and it went out this week. So I give that one a big recommend as well. Uh, and I'm going to hand this off to you, Allie. What have you been watching? Oh, uh, yeah. So I have been trying to get those spooky watches in um, on top of my continuing Columbo watch through, which 
the last time I watched through Columbo, it was on Netflix, and there weren't all the episodes up, but Tubi has everything. So <laughs> I am currently in like the early 90s Columbo, which is great and very much of its decade. So yeah, I've been watching through that. It's been pretty good. But also, I've been trying to start my spooky movie watching. I started out with In the Earth, which Brandon talked about. I don't know how many how many episodes back, but I loved it. Is very very into it. I love that stuff. Anything that's like folk horror, but also just weird explanations for what is going on. I'm so into it. Mushrooms, y'all. Some good eco horror. I love it. Yeah. Some good uh, synth pop horror. Yeah, it's like synth pop eco folk horror. <laughs> and then you know, having the pandemic as a background was also kind of funny and interesting because it doesn't really. I feel like it doesn't really factor in that much. To yeah, it. I think so. Unlike uh, movies like uh, Host or I don't know, there was one called Locked Down earlier this year. It's not like trying to kind of like document the small changes of living every day right now and like how things are just kind of off. It's more of these like bigger ideas of like how the pandemic is like shaken up our relationship to like nature and yeah. How in like isolation from each other, we've all gone like a little bit insane. Oh yeah. We've um, all gone insane. All gone insane. (laughs) Absolutely. And how your weird hobbies can uh, spiral out of control if no one comes in to check on you. So now you're uh playing music with the trees <laughs> oh i wish oh my gosh i've been focusing on the weird the wrong weird hobbies i've been focusing on the popular ones like now i have too many houseplants like <laughs> i feel like that's what everybody really got into here is houseplants everybody has plants well, now you'll have an audrey too in your hands soon enough i'm sure oh i hope so so next after i did that one i also finally watched the endless Oh, yeah. Yeah, which I enjoyed, but like some of the writing, like it felt kind of bro-y. And like this I know it's true. about brothers. Um, and that's always kind of a thing that grates me on movies that otherwise have like a great concept. Believe it or not, the uh, movie it's a sequel to is like a thousand times bro-ier. Like they actually oh scaled back God. the bro-iness. I oh believe my God. That. I have not, I didn't see the first one. I didn't even know it was a sequel, so... There's that. Yeah, I saw it the first time without knowing it was a sequel either, and I still haven't seen the first one. Yeah, I mean, it feels so standalone. Yeah, it feels complete. I really liked, like I said, the concept. I liked a lot of the things it did. But yeah, it's just kind of bro-y. Um, and I feel like there's the movie Triangle, not to like ruin the whole plot of The Endless, but or Triangle for that matter. But I feel like Triangle kind of does that whole plot better. And then the end uh, reminded me of the classic, like, Stephen King miniseries, The Langoliers. So that was good. (laughs) Are you pro-Langoliers? I am pro-Langoliers. I'm so sorry, y'all. It's all right. I don't even know what it's about. (laughs) It's about about Bronson Pinchot uh, having a mental breakdown. Breakdown, yeah. No. Um, It's about... Uh, these people who are on an airplane and somehow their plane becomes like unstuck in time, time yeah. where they're like temporarily just like one little like unit of time off from everyone else. Yeah. So they're wandering around basically like an empty airport while the Langoliers, which are like <laughs> meatballs with teeth. 
I guess. Oh, now I'm sold. Uh, they're really <laughs> oh, bad CGI it. meatball testicles with like chainsaw teeth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you would love it. That are, are pursuing them to they're try and to like. Get you. Con- yeah, they consume things that get lost in time so that they don't dirty up the time stream or whatever. They're ba- basically time Roombas are trying to get these people. It's good, it's okay? I, I'm i going to go ahead and, and cast my vote for it's not good, but <laughs> you'll have to decide for yourself. I'm sorry. I feel like that one and the Tommy Knockers are like two things I keep seeing in thrift stores every few years. And like I almost buy them and then I'll like quickly Google their like reputation. Uh, and I'll be like, oh, I don't need to spend five hours on this. Everyone hates it. <laughs> so I've seen neither. <laughs> I rented that one from Vulcan Video way back in 2015 when I was doing the Argento project. And I don't know if you remember this, but I texted you and was like, how do you feel about TV miniseries? Are they movies for the purpose of Swamp Flicks? And you were like, uh, I would see, rather see you do maybe like a Stephen King feature, like your Argento feature. And just the thought of doing that <laughs> <laughs> made my like <laughs> it shriveled me so i never i never asked about it again um which is fine i'm you know nobody's it doesn't matter but uh i would say that tommy knockers is bad but i enjoy it whereas langleers i can't recommend uh, yeah i mean it's not great but i had a lot of fun with it <laughs> sorry no, no, no. It's one of like the first things, one of those first like weird, hey, Allie, have you seen this thing that Thomas uh, exposed me to? So I also have fond memories of it that way because he's always just coming out with these wild uh, series and like movies that he lived through that were before my time. And I love it. That age gap. And then Brandon and I both watched life force but i watched it based off of brandon watching it it's a movie i've been meaning to see since um we have like kind of a sister podcast we do crossover episodes with called we love to watch and they did an episode i want to say back in like 2015 or 2016 and it was just like hard to watch at the time like i think you had to have it on physical media and now it's just sitting there on shutter and it is a perfect film (laughs) it's like so squarely in my wheelhouse it is. Uh, but I don't know how much wild. I want to talk about it other than I have been watching a lot of alien and alien related movies this year. And um, it fit perfectly in that both the original series alien and like the movies that inspired it. It feels like a, an atomic age sci-fi movie, you know, aged up for the eighties. It feels very like old school sci-fi, but it's got eighties erotic thriller undertones to it. Or overtones. Nothing's undertone in the movie. The movie's fully excessive. Oh, it's full. Uh, <laughs> yeah, full tones. You should know that when we watch it for movie of the month, I will be watching my personal VHS copy, which I, I own but have not yet watched. That's kind of perfect. I mean, that, watching oh, stuff that like that in perfect. HD feels a little perverse. Like, it seems like something that, you know, 12-year-olds should be sneaking late at night on VHS because they know it's a little naughty. They have to yes. wait for their parents to go to sleep. 100%. There's a lot of nudity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's so much but, nudity. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to review it, and I was sitting down looking at it and just like, I need to make more people sit and chew on this with me. <laughs> Not because there's a lot of nudity, but just because I loved it. Yeah, because there's so much to it. Namely, like, 
I am sad that they did not go with the original title of Space Vampires. It's adapted from a novel by that title, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand, like, why why change the title? It's a perfect title. Not that Life Force is a bad title, but Space Vampires. If it makes you feel any better, I'm, I'm making you and Boomer watch a movie called Planet of the Vampires soon. So you'll get your, your title in. <laughs> that makes me feel so much better. I'm, I'm going to admit it. <laughs> I also love that uh, Patrick Stewart is in this movie. You know, a lot of people's favorite uh, captain of a show that a couple Patrick of Stewart from watch. Dune? Patrick Stewart from Dune. You're right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Patrick Stewart from Dune. That's the sci-fi franchise he's most identified with, right? Exactly. Thank you. Okay, just making sure. I really enjoyed him in this movie. And yeah, there's just so much to this movie. And I'm very excited that you are going to make everybody watch it. Because <laughs> it should and be watched. infect people with the vampire space blood. As you should. As you should. Wow, spoiler alert. It's a vampire movie. It's not. That's not that spoilery. That's the first of like 10 things that it is. Yeah, I was going to say, that is the first. <laughs> There's of, a lot more going on. I wouldn't even say it's the first of 10 things. Like, I feel like it starts off as a sci-fi horror, and then it all goes downhill from there, slash uphill, depending on your feelings. Yeah, so that's uh, what I've been watching. What else have you been watching, Brandon, other than that wonderful Toby Hooper classic? I did um, take a recent trip to the movie theater and watched a double feature of films that are like old news by the time we were recording this. And I was surprised by which one I liked more, which was uh, Nia DaCosta's Candyman remake. It's not really a remake. It's basically a sequel to the original Candyman, which uh, I did not expect going into it. I've been wanting to see that. I was a little worried about it because what I had heard was it beats you over the head with its like metaphor and political messaging. And it's just not a very good horror film, which which I think is inaccurate. It is set in an art gallery space and like the Chicago art scene. And so at the very least, I think that they picked a very smart setting for the film because it allows them to both talk about the sort of like gentrification issues that they want to discuss and also about Candyman as a symbol and as like a personification of like decades of black pain, sort of like, or centuries, uh, sort of like reinterpreted as a pop art figure, because it is in an art gallery, they can have these like sort of abstract, like direct conversations about that stuff. And to me, I don't see the point in being subtle about it. No. If you're going to be in that kind of like space where that type of discussion happens. Also, like that sort of criticism thing leads you to think that the original Candyman, like, has a subtle political implication. It doesn't. <laughs> I think there are interpretations <laughs> it's of so what Ellen George means in that movie, though. Because um, a lot of people see her as a victim, and it, at the, I, mean, I don't know, watching it recently, I was just thinking about how much she keeps intruding on these people's lives. Exactly. And, like, bringing Candyman into their homes. Right. Um so there's, there, there's different interpretations of the original. This one doesn't have much room for that kind of debate, but I don't think that's a problem. What I found was DaCosta kind of like grappling with the idea of like, well, if, if I'm going to bring Candyman back into the cultural zeitgeist, what does that mean? What does he mean to us as a culture? And sort of like directly prodding at what he represents, which I thought was kind of cool. And she also gets a lot of the atmosphere of horror 
really well down. Like there's a lot of like mirror imagery and like these slow building gross outs with like this like bee sting wound that just festers and gets worse and worse. And um, I found it very tense and unnerving in a way that I think is perfect for the horror genre and, you know, scary. What I think is losing a lot of people and maybe my only gripe with the movie myself is like, she kind of shies away from showing on-screen violence directly. And it seems like a very purposeful choice. Like there will be a character being killed um, in her own apartment. And instead of us zooming in to see the disgusting gore that the original Candyman would have, the camera directly or like very intentionally zooms out. And we watch the kill from like across the street so that the violence gets smaller and smaller as it's actually getting worse. Or we'll be in a bathroom where these like teen girls say Candyman five times in the mirror. And instead of actually watching them get killed by Candyman, we watch, we listen to it and we see like some of the aftermath as they like fall down, but we're watching it through mirrors and around corners and like under bathroom stalls and stuff. So like she's very intentionally obscuring the violence that Candyman exacts on innocent people or even um, not so innocent people, like kind of like white art snobs who like, only appreciate black art as like a commodity as, as a lot of the targets that he chooses in the film or because they evoke him without really thinking about what he means. Um, so yeah, I, I can see how the violence is like unsatisfying. There's like a catharsis to bloodshed in horror films that this movie is directly or intentionally not delivering to you. And I can see how that could be very frustrating. And honestly, I was frustrated by it, but it made me think about, why I needed to see more violence than I was getting. Like it made me think about its choice. Um, and it didn't feel like something she just like neglected to do or, you know, didn't have the guts to do or anything like that. I think it's much better than it's like reputation. as like a middling, you know, mainstream horror film. I think it has a lot going on in its ideas and in its atmosphere. It was very good. I, um, I haven't seen it. I only remember reading Walter Chaw's review of it, but I, as someone who hasn't seen it, I might venture to ask if you think that that's intentional in so far as the mainstream white audience, when it comes to narratives of black horror, they want to see black suffering that like black misery is often like the selling point for those works at times. Do you think that it's a deliberate invocation and sort of rejection of that? I don't have an answer for what exactly she was doing because it's not only black victims in this case. Okay. Um, it's mostly white people, but I will say the, the one time she really leans in and shows like a wound festering on someone and their body being taken over by the physicality of Candyman's violence. It's someone who has a so- sort of like charmed life as this like artist and he's being absorbed into this history of pain that Candyman represents and he becomes part of the, like, gestalt of bees that makes up Candyman. It's like a hive of, like, black men who have suffered over the, the decades okay. of American racism. So there's definitely something very intentional going on. And it could be as simple as, you know, I don't want to show a black figure slaughtering white people on screen as, like, a payoff. It could be I don't want to show black people dying on screen because the world has seen enough of that. I don't know that that sounds like a much simpler take than what she's going for to me. Okay. I feel like she's kind of re- redirecting your eye to what Candyman means 
how it's like a bigger story than just like one guy who, you know, mm-hmm. was killed as a slave for crossing miscegenation lines. I, I don't know. It's It's got bigger ideas than I think it's getting credit for. I do... Want to note, though, that I <laughs> found myself sort of leaning in, wanting to see the blood, which uh, made me kind of, like, examine myself a little bit, um, which I don't think is a bad thing. I was like, why do I want this so bad? I can I can find my gore anywhere else. I don't need every movie to deliver that. And that same day, I went to see the new A24 fantasy film that has been marketed as a horror film and has some horror elements. Lamb? Oh, how was oh, it? Yeah, I'm very curious that? and excited. I read the description the vague description and i was like oh that sounds like something i'd be into (laughs) i liked it for the first 30 minutes and then it ended up being my biggest disappointment all year and i don't normally um bring up movies just to shit on them on these like intros but i felt like i had to get it out there that the movie is like a letdown fair enough i mean not everyone's gonna feel the same way but it's set in three chapters and you get these like two icelandic people they're a couple on a farm and they sort of go about their daily chores, tending to their sheep and, you know, just doing other little menial farm work. And then one of the lambs they deliver in the barn, they look at it in this like sort of awe and they decide to bring that lamb inside and raise it as their own child. And you don't get to see what's special about this lamb that they're raising for the first chapter, which is like a third of the movie. And during that segment, it feels like fairy tale magic. Like there's something really enticing about the way it tells the story where you really want to peek under the blanket that's swaddling the lamb to like get a real glimpse of its like full body. And it had this like real movie magic going for it. And I was like on the edge of my seat, like wanting to know where it's going to go. And then the second chapter starts and they show the lamb in full, like head to toe. This is what this creature looks like. And my heart just dropped because it's basically a CGI head superimposed onto a body. It looked like about the level of magic that you'd see in like a Geico commercial. Um, oh, and no. just really broke my heart. <laughs> and every time I looked at the thing, like in, in close ups, they do a lot of great practical work and like really obscure, you know, the seams between what would make that creature work. But whenever they want to show it in full or in profile, they really have to rely on this like cheap CGI that I really just feel like zaps all of the magic out of it. And I was just thinking like if you couldn't do this in animatronics or in, you know, stop motion or some other kind of like tactile, touchable, you know, form, like why bother? Like that the whole movie is about this like magical creature. And as soon as, you know, the magic is something that you can do on a laptop, then what's the point? Yeah, like the description, I was like, "Oh, is this going to be like a little little otic type thing?" But it sounds like they little wanted otic it to is be. so much better. It's so good. And little otic doesn't look real either, like real quote unquote. But yeah, you can touch it, you can feel it. Like it looks like a real object that is interacting with the world around it. Um, and this doesn't. It just looks superimposed. Like it looks like a bit from a Conan O'Brien skit like twenty years ago. Where they like superimpose a moving mouth over a picture of someone talking. Oh, Just, no. I mean, I'm really like, I don't know. I, I understand how people could be into it because I really liked the fairy tale somberness of it, but I was really let down by the practical necessity to supplement its effects with CGI. 
And especially by the end scene, the end scene like really pissed me off. <laughs> the last like 30 seconds goes even bigger with the the CGI non-magic. And um, I just left really dejected and then really surprised that I was looking forward to Lamb and sort of like cautiously skeptical about Candyman. And uh, my expectations were completely flopped, which is a great feeling. I like being completely wrong. Sure, it seems like a lot of blood. It's a period. But really, it was like a geyser. Mm-hmm. Everyone seems to panic their first time. Now, neither of you have had a period before, and you're how old? I'm almost 16. She just turned 15. She skipped a grade. A thick, syrupy, voluminous discharge is not uncommon. The bulk of the uterine lining is shed within the first few days. Contractions, cramps, squeeze it out like a pump. In three to five days, you'll find lighter, bright red bleeding. That may turn to a brownish or blackish sludge, which signals the end of the flow. Okay, so it's all normal. Very. Expected every 28 days, give or take, for the next 30 years. Ugh, great. Thanks. Oh, what about um, hair that wasn't there before? And pain? Mm-hmm. Comes with the territory. So this week for the podcast, I had Allie and Brandon watch the 2000 indie horror werewolf sisterhood flick, Ginger Snaps, starring Emily Perkins, Catherine Isabel, and Mimi Rogers, all three of whom had previously appeared on The X-Files, and written by John Fawcett and Karen Walton, who went on to co-create the excellent uh, BBC Canada co-production Orphan Black. Uh, In this film, we have Ginger, played by... Uh, Catherine Isabel, who is the older sister of an extremely depressed sister-sister coupling, and younger sister Bridget is the more staid of the two, whereas Ginger is a little wilder. But both of them are extremely disinterested in their small town of Bailey Downs until one night while attempting to get vengeance on one of the alpha bitches at their school they are attacked by what might be a dog while also dealing with ginger's um menarche what did you guys think about this one i really enjoyed it i had a lot of fun with it was this a new watch for you it was a new watch for me actually yeah i mean i've i've been saying to y'all off mic that yeah bridget i'm just like oh that was me in high school but there was a scene where she and the mom were sitting at a table and the mom's wearing like all these like cheery like pattern cardigans with knitting stuff knit stuff on them and the bright pink oh, bow. so good and then bridge is like sitting there like the hair in front of her face and like her drab like turtleneck and i'm like oh it's me talking to me <laughs> at a table because <laughs> i was just like oh that was me and now this is me um but also i would still wear that goth look and the the necklace, the bird necklace, of course. Uh, but yeah, I really really liked it. I I thought it was a lot of fun, even though the I feel like the ending was a little bit of a bummer. But you know, it's fun. I have a similar reaction to Bridget 
in that I see a lot of my high school self in her. But I think a lot of that is the fact that this was a movie I really liked in high school. And um, I have like a more of a embarrassing return to that mentality where it's like adorable, maybe how gloomy I was for no reason back then. <laughs> <laughs> and like the first like 30 minutes of it, they're like so edgelordy trying to like freak everybody out and their like main thing is they don't want to be different from anyone else. Well, they don't want to be the same, same as, as everyone else. They want to be yeah. different. They're like Harold and modding themselves at the beginning. Harolding. Yeah. Harold and modding themselves at the beginning. Yeah. And not only just like as like a art project where they like photograph themselves staging these like suicides around their yard, but also showing that material in class as oh, it's so it's like an art project <laughs> that other people should look at um, instead of just an embarrassing thing you do um, as, you know, a gloomy goth kid. But one of the funniest things to me in this movie is, like, the main thrust of the story is this, like, sort of parallel between, like, werewolf transformations and puberty. And especially, like, getting your period for the first time and your, like, first, like, sexual awakenings, like, of sexual desire. And the funniest thing is, like, when she first gets her period, Ginger is angry because she tries so hard to be different from everyone else. And then her body betrays her and made her just like everyone else. She got something that everyone else gets. Um, which I guess what I'm saying is this movie like nails teenage mental space in a oh, way that few films do. It really does. But also at some point, like for some reason, it doesn't make me cringe as a lot of those movies do. You know, for a lot of those movies, I get that like secondhand embarrassment. But for this one, I was just like, this is this is great. This is perfect. I guess I meant cringy in the way that you're talking about sitting at the table with the cheery mom. Yeah. That's like the, the you now. Yeah. Where, you know, that mother character is a total badass and actually more of a, like, I'm willing to burn all, all this, this down stuff. to save my oh, family. Exactly. Badass. I had forgotten her. about that moment and I loved it. <laughs> I was like, what a great mom. But Bridget is more of this, like, gloomy, squirmy observer who, like, doesn't actually do much as an active character besides worry about her sister who's getting out of control. So, yeah, yeah I guess I see it. When I'm saying cringing, I'm like looking back at the person I was at the time, and I'm like, what was I so upset about? And what what was I so, why was I pushing people away so hard and like trying to separate myself from everyone else when like, there's nothing wrong with being average. I, I recognize now that I'm an average, boring person and I'm okay with it. But at the time, it was like the biggest deal in the world to not be that. I feel like, you know, a lot of teenage movies, I'm like, oh, God, I was like that. And this one, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I was that sad, gloomy person that's adorable and i think maybe just the the fact that you do watch bridget kind of grow as a character you know she's like researching all this stuff and she's kind of finding out that she likes having her own space and her own adventures and unfortunately you know shit goes south but you can see where she would have started to be more of her own sort of enthusiastic about life person there's a lot of buffy happening here too because this was uh, presumably filmed in 1999, considering that it was released in 2000. It looks like it was released uh, in May of 2001 uh, as a wide release, but went to the Munich Fantasy Film Fest, where it had its initial release in 2000, which is when Buffy would have been in its like third season when this was being filmed. Maybe it's fourth. And there's a lot of that, and you can kind of see it, because... I think Chris Limchie's character of Sam, who, you know, he drives the uh, 
he he grows weed in the community greenhouse. But yeah, he's part I was of gonna say I love project. that it's like community green project, and yeah, he's literally growing. He weed. sells green to the community. He's trying really hard in the early scenes to give like Christian Slater and Heather's vibes. Yep. Yep. And he's mostly doing like <laughs> Xander. He's mostly ineffectual early season Xander. Well, okay, Xander is is ineffectual in later seasons too. But he's trying really hard and he's not playing it off very well. And this was a movie that I first saw when I was a teenager, although I was no longer in high school. I was a freshman in college, uh, and this was on IFC all the time in that era, which I'll go ahead and admit was like 2005, 2006. So I saw this in October of 2005, which is 16 years ago now, and it was constantly airing back to back with its sequel. Not its prequel, but... Ginger Snaps 2 Unleashed was was often airing right behind it. And I saw this whenever I was like home by myself and I fell in love with it. But there was a lot that I had forgotten. Uh, I had even forgotten that Mimi Rogers was in this movie, which is bizarre considering how much I love, love the terrible 1998 version of Lost in Space, of which she is one of the <laughs> 700 best moving parts that adds up to an incoherent incomprehensible whole um but i loved her willingness to just burn everything down with her children and one thing that i would not have known at that time is if you actually look at the cast so emily uh perkins she was in the all saints or all souls episode of the x-files which was season five episode 17 which aired in april 1998 Catherine Isabel was in season five, episode nine, that aired in January of 1998, And Mimi Rogers' first episode was at the end of season five as well, which would have also been 1998. This film would have been made in 1999, which is when, you know, after they finished season five is when they moved production of the X-Files from Vancouver to L.A., Right, because they yeah. it was between season five and season six that they did the movie. So now you have all of these like Vancouver area filmmakers, right, who now have all this experience after putting in five years on the X Files. What are you going to do? You put them to work, and they make ginger snaps. And yeah. I think that you can kind of see that because X Files and Buffy were often, you know, uh, considered to be not sister shows, but of the same cloth in the way that they were sort of postmodern, that they were genre fiction, and that and both of them are kind of about uh, supernatural cops in their own way. There's a really great video uh, from one of the YouTube channels that's um, Skip Intro. Uh, there's a Copaganda Episode 7 where they talk about whether or not Buffy is a cop show, and they talk about scoopy, spooky cops and the legacy of that through... The television so supernatural as well as fringe and grim, right? So there's a lot of Buffy in this movie's DNA, and there's a lot of X Files in this movie's DNA as well. And it's even got like a weird <laughs> Ralph Steadman esque title screen where it's like sort of splashing around and inky, but it's blood. So it really was just like throw everything at the wall that we know about and see what sticks. And somehow it ended up being pretty consistent and great. 
It's funny hearing you talk about these like independent filmmakers that are sort of left over with nothing to do with their new on the set experience because watching this again I was surprised by how cheap and small it felt when like as a teenager I didn't know any difference like this was just sort of a normal horror film to me and now right. I'm like oh this is like a festival movie yeah I'm used to losing that illusion now when I've been at a film festival for a week solid and I've only seen movies with like $10,000 budgets uh for like a week straight and then it just sort of like you lose that context of what a bigger more polished movie should feel like and this feels like it wouldn't have the space to breathe if it came out now kind of like what you're saying what we were talking about earlier with like the sort of like middle ground between art house horror and mainstream big budget horror all the stuff in the middle sort of gets lost in the streaming swirl i feel like this movie wouldn't have the space to build an audience now the way it did back then because it does feel cheap and small and there would be a thousand other movies just like it um, and it'd be really hard for it to stand out in any way. And I think it has a pretty healthy cultural cachet among millennials anyway. It's like something people remember fondly, which is impressive considering its scale and budget. I think that people put this one in a sort of spiritual trilogy with The Craft. Oh yeah, it felt like very like Werewolf The Craft, except... Like, I feel like the craft eventually just kind of loses me at the end. It just feels very, like, girl attacks other girl and girls fighting girls. And, like, they get that over with really early on in Gender Snaps, and I really yeah. appreciated that. <laughs> I love, the I love lycanthropy as a potentially sexually transmitted disease. Yeah. That yeah. amuses me as well. Um, yes. But it's like, this one is part of, like, a, you know... I myself think of it this way. I think of Heather's Jawbreaker and Mean Girls being kind of like a spiritual trilogy of films. Mm-hmm. Although they get less, <laughs> they get less, uh, mean almost as they go along. Whereas this belongs in kind of a spiritual trilogy. So I've been told with The Craft and followed by Jennifer's Body. Yeah. I don't see The Craft as much when I think of this. I, I get, I get the comparison, but. What I think of is this as an example of like female pu- puberty, oh, like bodily yeah, changes, so like teeth, teeth, um, Jennifer's body. There's one called "Blew My Mind" a few years ago that was like a mermaid version of it. It's something that I see repeated a lot. Like that sort of like metaphor is something that I've seen a ton of times, but this was the first time I ever saw it. So anytime I see blew my mind i'm like oh that's the mermaid version of ginger snaps like this is like the text i always refer back to when i guess you're right like it's not very different from the craft or carrie i guess i might have seen i might have seen the craft first but but i don't think puberty is necessarily tied in as explicitly as as in this one yeah um the way it is in carrie it's still very like we're outsiders trying to be different rather than puberty right being a it's not about um growing hair in unusual places exactly or uh (laughs) literally bleeding um (laughs) insane amounts of blood and then everyone else telling you it's normal oh yeah that happens all the time it's like i don't think you're picturing the amount of blood that i'm talking about here well i Uh, mean that's just healthcare. (laughs) right (laughs) that's just how it actually is that scene with that nurse I think taught most people more about what menstruation is than like the American education system. Oh yeah. <laughs> For sure. 
this also has like the craft and jawbreaker so in this sort of like 90s space the uh sort of slow-mo musical high school hallway sequence like this one should (laughs) almost have the jawbreaker are you who are you who are you who over it you know (laughs) like even though it was playing some garbage metal cradle of filth bullshit over that scene i i in my heart and in my mind was hearing i you who while ginger was you know experiencing her sexual awakening uh, or experiencing being observed as a sexual being by the school at large and not just by a bunch of creepy boys and overalls sitting in the bleachers after school it's so funny how like bridget is the one you relate to and then you watch that shot of Ginger strutting down the hallway. And at least at the time, I would have thought, she is the coolest person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I still have that awe in my eye now watching. I'm like, oh, that's hilarious. But at the time, I was like, what a badass. Uh, one of the movies that we did not mention as being spiritually similar to this one yet, but which I mentioned as being spiritually similar to this when I first wrote my review of it a few years back, is uh, Raw. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, another one. Yeah, that's another one. Because that one is also about sisters. It's about learning something about yourself. In that mm-hmm. one, it's more of like a weird family secret. But just as in that one, this one also has mom having hidden depths that we weren't really privy to. We don't know what that mom's been doing. <laughs> <laughs> Her little outfits, upon reflection, seem like she's protesting too much, right? Oh, as someone, like I said, who who kind of dresses like that it's 100 percent yes <laughs> i like in raw how that like immersion of new appetites that are like impossible to control isn't as explicit as it is here where here is like very much a one-to-one metaphor like, yeah her sexual appetite um is like literalized into her wanting to devour people um which i guess also happens in raw but i, I guess here it's like just sort of openly discussed that uh, everyone's telling her that's a normal thing that happens to you around that age, but it's made more grotesque because, you know, it's a werewolf transformation. Um, and it's I think in Raw, it's like a lot more, you know, just difficult to pin down. It's not like it's not as like direct uh, what's going on in that movie. Like the, the appetite yeah. and the um, self-discovery could be several different things, depending on how you want to read the movie. There was also discussion of Juno in the viewing room whenever I watched this, because my friend had his birthday party last Friday, and it was a goth costume birthday party, because that's the kind of people (laughs) that I associate with and am. And they had just watched The Craft on the Wednesday of that week, and I was saying, oh, yeah, you know, for the podcast next time that we record, it's my pick. And I picked Ginger Snaps, and my friend Emma was like, oh, that's on the board. That's one that we are planning to watch, because she had like a childhood remembrance of her mother covering her eyes whenever <laughs> they went to someone's home and it was playing. And so she's had like a lifetime fascination with Ginger Snaps, right? But it, it is all in that same sort of, you know, space with Raw and the craft. Like it kind of exists there. In the sense that you don't, even though the horror genre is full of final girls, they're usually not written by or for women. But this time, for sure. 
And this is also, I don't know if we, we mentioned this, but Emily Perkins has that background because she was young Beverly in the original 1990 it miniseries. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're looping back around. Yeah. It, it always loops back. There was so much smoking in this movie on <laughs> campus. <laughs> and the uh, girls hold their cigarettes like they're World War One soldiers in the trenches. <laughs> they hold yeah. them like <laughs> it's the only warmth they've uh, you know encountered in like <laughs> years. And it's it's funny because this you know came out in two thousand and Cat was like God they're just smoking right there on campus but the high school that we went to just a couple of years before we went there was still allowing uh, students who were of age to buy cigarettes to smoke on campus right yeah wow um, and that and we we started going to school there I did in two thousand three and she did in two thousand four so as late as like two thousand two. They let 18-year-olds smoke, like, without, and she was like, God, this seems so unrealistic. And I was like, you know, honestly, it really wasn't that long ago. A uh, quick side note, I watched Child's Play 2 last night, which is, like, my favorite Chucky movie. And I had completely forgotten there's a scene where Andy full-on smokes a cigarette. Yes! <laughs> this little, like, eight-year-old's, like, huffing Marlboro. Fascinating. I was like... I was the most shocking image in that whole movie to me. My jaw dropped. Like they're showing a child with a cigarette in his mouth. The hero of the story, even. Yeah, yeah. Beth Grant in that one as the oh, teacher yeah. is so good. Love her. It. I don't know that it's my favorite. I like the first one because I like how much they're kind of half-heartedly committed to the idea that maybe, just maybe... Uh, it's all in Andy's head, <laughs> um, very briefly. And there's also, there's, there's one particular shot of, uh, okay. So here's the thing about the first one. So much of it is shot in actual working force perspective. So that like things are bigger, like they, they built larger sets yeah. for things that are supposed to be from, is it Andy? Yeah, it is Andy's point of view. Um, for a moment, I was like, wait, is it Danny? But no, that's The Shining. It's Andy. Yeah. And in doing so, they were able to like actually use uh, little person actors in mm-hmm. like Chucky suits to like make Chucky move more fluidly and believably. And I, I really like that. And I think that that was missing from the later sequels, which obviously they couldn't do it with the sort of budgets that they had. Yeah, the first ones, the animatronics are like still mind blowing. And they uh, yeah. they slowly switch out the dolls' faces so that it looks more and more like Brad Dourif as it's like becoming, as Chucky's becoming human again in his new body, he like actually starts to resemble his old self, um, which is like a very gradual payoff. Yeah. And if you watch the sequel, they don't even bother, <laughs> and uh, Chucky doesn't move as much in full. So yeah, the animatronics are not as impressive, but. I just love movies that feel like they're R-rated films for children and like all the toy factory stuff and like the primary color palette and everything like that just really hits me um, right in the heart. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of animatronics, we should talk about the actual werewolf in this movie. Yeah, we should talk about the werewolf. Which is also cheap. (laughs) But it looks great. The transformations are very disturbing. Whenever we were preparing to watch this and as we were watching it, the two things that I remembered most clearly were that scene in the nurse's office and everything to do with Ginger's tail. 
I remember being so creeped out by the tail when I was a teenager. Her tail is so adorable when oh, so Bridget gross. lowers her panties. Oh my god, I loved so, it. <laughs> okay, y'all, obviously I am a cat person. I have three cats, but I don't know if I told y'all that last August my cat had to get her tail amputated um, because she had a tumor and so she has this little like nubby tail and so when we saw that scene like i was like oh (laughs) it's the nubbin i can't tell if it's supposed to horrify you or if it's supposed to be cute because it's supposed to horrify you it wiggles though (laughs) it's so cute (laughs) oh it's nauseating (laughs) oh it makes me sick to my stomach because it's Ugh. <laughs> I found it as disturbing this time as I did when I was a youngster. <laughs> it warmed my heart. Yeah, That's I was gonna say. Tail wagon or For me, I was just like, oh, it's a sweet nubbin. <laughs> Y'all are sick. Y'all are sick. Okay, <laughs> well, you didn't, you didn't see my cat with her tail nub shaved, and I'll have to send you a picture. <laughs> Please don't. I do not consent to that. <laughs> I'm saying that right now. On a similar note, though, the uh, the full ginger wolf at the end is this like sort of like albino looking werewolf. That wolf is horrifying and disgusting. And almost looks great. Like there's like a smoothness to it. Like they should have like, or they could have put more hair on it with like maybe a bigger budget. So it looks very rubbery. Which I don't, I don't, I don't know why I'm picky about that. I watched so many like '50s sci-fi movies uh, with rubber suit monsters, and I love them. So maybe it's just something about the era. I expect a little more like. Just hair, <laughs> like grit. <laughs> but the fact that she has these like breasts, yeah, additional extra breasts, like a like a canine, but yeah. they're vaguely human. That got me. Where I was like, oh god, it's so weird that she's like halfway between the werewolf and the human state, mm-hmm. and it's like kind of this like not fully transformed thing yet. She's still like not quite there. Like that, I thought creeped me out the way the tail got you. I was okay. gonna say like the actual like werewolf body. I was like, oh gross. Also, she makes it gross by um, hitting on her sister in that final conversation yeah. as well. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, Bridget's safe because this, uh, you know, hunger that Ginger has is, you know, so sexual. So Bridget will just be there to, like, try to save her before she goes too far. And then um, the movie crosses that line almost gleefully. Like, yeah, you know, she directly hits on Bridget. She's like, and you're like, oh, no, I forgot about incest. I forgot they could pull that taboo out of their back pocket. <laughs> and that part grossed me out as well. I will say, I yeah, I think that that's effective. It's not my favorite part of this. I do sort of feel like it starts to unravel a little towards the end. It's not a very long movie, but I think that it could have done with a little bit of trimming, even though apparently there are deleted scenes already, including sort of like what happened to mom after they ditched her at that party. What happened to mom? What happened to um, mom? She just kept looking for them. Eh. Oh, okay. But you know, I <laughs> it's been so long. The house down. Yeah, it's it's been so long since I saw the sequel. Even though I like watched them together initially, but again, that was sixteen years ago. I don't know if they even tell us. I, I know that Mimi Rogers is not in it. It's not on her IMDb page. But I don't even know if they tell us within that narrative what became of her or not. I've seen both of the follow ups, and I have no recollection of the sequel. I only remember the prequel because it was so bad. I didn't even realize there was a third one. I just remembered like this and then the prequel where the t- same two actors are, you know. On the frontier. Yeah. I <laughs> oh my God. feel like it's just kind of a perfect like self, like standalone thing that I just. 
yeah, what's the point? I'm not even going to bother. Well, you know what would be a great sequel is um, a modern one where Ginger goes through menopause and then another transformation. <gasps> That's wow. the sequel we need. Catherine Isabel is not even 40 years old. I don't think. Well, <laughs> maybe not now. Maybe uh, 10, 15 years from now. I don't know. She's 39. She'll turn 40 this year. So not yet. We love you, Catherine. If you're listening to this, I love you. I loved you in Disturbing Behavior. I loved you uh, in uh, Josie and the Pussycats. I loved you in Freddy vs. Jason. I love you. I loved you in Supernatural. Please don't hate us. Oh, about the sequel. Allie, actually, I think the sequel is very good. Because does anybody care if I ruin something? No. No. So the sequel reveals that the monk's hood cure is like temporary. Oh. And so she basically has to continue giving it to herself, but it is mistaken for drug use and she's put into an asylum where she has no access to the monk's hood in in order to prevent her transformation. And there are other patients in there, including a young Tatiana Maslany, who of course would go on to star in Orphan Black, uh, created by, you know, uh, Fawcett and Karen. I enjoyed that one. Um, I, I <laughs> The beginning is real bad, but I remember that the sequel was pretty good. Uh, in fact, it looks like the original Ginger Snaps has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes and Unleashed, the second one, has an 88%. So, you know, it's it's pretty consistent with this one, at least. It was the prequel that I remember being terrible. I have no recollection of the oh, sequel Oh, it's real whatsoever. bad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, why explain it? Don't. It's not even that. It's just, like, completely different characters played by the same actors in a different temporal location. Like, they just ran out of stuff to do with them in the 2000s and were like, I don't fucking know. Let's do a Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman episode with them in the werewolf <laughs> stuff. Yeah, let's just make it Little House on the Little Werewolf on the Prairie. <laughs> if I can uh, recall one more thing that I uh, found effectively disturbing in this. It is the uh, sexually transmitted lycanthropy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where not only does Ginger have to go through the curse, but uh, she passes on sort of like cis female puberty onto the boy that she sleeps with, uh, where he starts getting the same like body modifications and then through his urethra pisses blood. Oh, yeah. She's like spreading this like, uh, you know, femme body horror experience that she's having to her sexual partner. And he doesn't know what to do with it, which I don't know. You were talking earlier about how this is the horror at this time was mostly aimed at like teenage boy audiences. So I thought that was like an effective idea for a scare. Yeah. <laughs> right down to when they first hook up in the backseat of the car and he tries to take control and she's like, I'm so much more powerful than you. And like pins him down and like basically uses him as a sex toy the way that he would have with her. I thought that was all very effective, like psychosexual teenage boy squirminess. Mm-hmm. The movie's pretty effectively creepy in ways that I always forget because the stuff that I remember is the sort of like goth wish fulfillment kind of stuff where like she becomes the most powerful girl in school, even though she's, um you know, kind of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, but but I had forgotten that the movie actually like goes for the jugular with a lot of it's like just creeping you out with like the specifics of the body horror of puberty and like the specifics of like her sexual hunger getting out of control and the the actual werewolf puppet. Like it actually does try to unnerve you in these very effective ways. It's a pretty bloody movie. Yeah, it is. There's so much gore and 
I liked it, but it is like way bloodier than I was expecting. I'm gonna be honest. Way more dead dogs than I remembered. Yeah, oh, so many dead dogs. Right at the beginning too, which again I had forgotten. Sorry. No, I mean that is like part of the like this is way, way gory, disturbing, disgusting, but also has like this dark humor about it, like the idea of them wanting to recreate a dead dog scene with <laughs> their uh, enemy from the beginning's dog. It's a pretty it's pretty effective in the way that it moves through Ginger's various levels of responsibility to where the first kill that actually happens isn't really their fault. Yeah. Like that woman, I mean, they were <laughs> that woman. I call her a woman because she does look much older than they do. Um, <laughs> Catherine Isabel and Emily Perkins are both very effectively playing teenagers here. And I think that they were both like within, within like that 18 to 22 range anyway, but the they're like, Libby character she she really she comes on the scene and she looks like an adult woman who's who's messing yeah. with them that feels like that though when you're in high school and there's someone who's like prettier and more put together than you you're like that person is an adult who has their shit figured out whereas like Bridget is like buried under this giant heavy wig that doesn't fit her head um, yeah. like yeah. just looks uncomfortable in her body and her clothes I don't know if that was an intentional choice but it, it kind of works we never really figure out the wig thing. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? Bridget's wig is like very distracting. Yeah, it is. That's not her hair? No. No. There's no way. I'm very easily fooled by wigs, I'll be honest. I was telling y'all about the goth party that we went to. Cat wore a wig, and honestly, she looked like a different person to me. So I don't know. <laughs> well, that's why wigs are fun. Yeah. That is why wigs are fun. Man. Now I know who I can get away with wigs around. Yeah, you can pull a full uh, Clark Kent on me with a wig, and that's all you need. Wig and no glasses. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, who is this? It's a brand new human being I've never met before. Um, You were talking about the first kill. Yeah, the first kill, she's not really responsible, right? This woman gets comes into their house. Um, admittedly, they had been like pranking her, and the pranks were pretty awful but she just slips and falls so the movie actually manages to milk a little bit more mileage of like sympathy for ginger out of that story because if she had just gone ahead and like killed her immediately right then and there you lose your sympathy for ginger too soon i think well i don't think you full on even lose your sympathy for her because it is something that is just like out of her control until very later on. Like, yeah, she's a total bitch, but like that's being a teenager. I found that to be like admirable confidence, which I feel yeah, like exactly. I always love in my misbehaving teenage or not even teenagers, misbehaving female characters in films. Like, I love to see women misbehave to the point of criminality. Exactly. <laughs> like, do it with confidence. It's always a thrill, even when they're like morally wrong. It's like, fuck yeah, someone's getting away with it. Yeah. It just makes it so that when they're trying to cover up that first death, you're still much more on their side because they didn't actually kill that girl or that right. full-grown woman right. that they go to high school with. Yeah, I just watched two versions of um, Little Shop of Horrors uh, for the last podcast we did, and that's the Seymour route, right? Where you like 
you feed a little bit of blood of your own blood to the plant and then there's an accidental death and you're like well i guess it's okay if i feed that body to the plant and then by the end you're like full on murdering people yeah um you could call that the eating raul as well yes um it has that similar <laughs> oops somebody help me i'm falling down the slippery slope kind of yeah. you know thing to it <laughs> oops i tripped the only thing that like I have to say that I haven't touched yet. It's just that it felt very wrong to watch this in HD. Like uh, this is oh, like a VHS yeah. blockbuster yeah. rental. Um, yeah. <laughs> not that I should glorify that format because it is very faulty in a lot of ways. And I don't even own a VHS player anymore. But uh, just watching it on HD, I'm like, man, it's easier to pick apart the like rubber quality of the werewolf suit. And it's easier to see the limitations of the budget when you're watching something so crisp. <laughs> like, it's so funny because I see those things and I see things working within a strained budget. Yeah. And to me, it comes across as obviously styled that way. Like rather than try to make something look so realistic, you're obviously going to skew it more towards like the kitschy side. And I kind of love that. I don't think it's a detriment to the movie. It just like yeah. sort of reoriented how I think about it. Because I never yeah. thought about this as this like festival movie that could. Like a little tiny indie that, you know, pushed through and had a cultural impact despite all the roadblocks of its budget. Whereas like now I'm like, wow, it's pretty amazing that so many people even know what this is. When there are like festival movies like this all the time that get no distribution to begin with. And I think a lot of that probably has something to do with its constant airing on IFC for like a couple of years in the same way that like it was during that same period where they were constantly showing, but I'm a cheerleader, which also kind of has that same festival feel, but eternal remembrance in the historical. It's eternally remembered by people who saw it. And a lot of people happen to see it just because it was on the t- on TV all the time. Also happened to have one of the best movie soundtracks of the 1990s. Can't disagree. Can't say the same about Ginger Snaps. I don't know that. Um. I Okay, so uh, <laughs> several years ago when I went and saw uh, <laughs> Event Horizon at uh, Weird Wednesday at the Alamo, one of the things that they mentioned was just like how fortunate we were that like Event Horizon for the time that it came out, that it didn't just have like a real terrible truly bad death metal soundtrack because it's <laughs> when you look at it within that time frame it's very much a bad death metal movie right like it should have it but miraculously it doesn't so hero for that i think it works here because i was a new metal dumbass like a new metal shithead at the time that this came out and that's why i was a gloomy bridget i think it works here because yeah it's very like these are angsty teens that's what they would listen to yeah exactly that's what teenagers listen to right children (laughs) but uh yeah it is like funny to look back and all that like cool kid posturing with such a generic metal soundtrack it's like god this music's very bland (laughs) yeah (laughs) but at the time i would have thought it's very cool nothing as catchy as chick habit the april march cover of chick habit on the but i'm a cheerleader soundtrack classic Well, this was a Halloween classic to me as someone who was a new metal shithead teen around the time that it came out. It was very wonderful to revisit for this podcast, Um, and it is widely available to watch. You can watch Ginger Snaps for free on, like, all of the usual suspects, like Tubi and Voodoo and the Roku channel. It's on Peacock Premium. 
but also it's an HD on Shutter without the ads. And so highly recommend watching it if you've never seen it before or if you want to revisit it in HD and see some of the uh, see some of the seams of the costumes and things that you might have missed when it was back on VHS. <laughs> Get a clearer look at it. Next week on the show, we are recording before Halloween, but the show will go up after. So I picked kind of a transitional episode. We're going to talk about Morgus the Magnificent, who was New Orleans's version of Elvira. He's like a mad scientist. Yeah. He's our local horror host. Um, He had a feature film in the 1960s called The Wacky World of Dr. Morgus. So I'm making Brittany watch that, and I'm making her watch a Hollywood film that, um, not stole, but borrowed its exact plot. And that one's not a horror film. So we're watching one horror film and one not. This is our like sort of like fading away from Halloween discussions. And um, like Boomer mentioned at the top of the episode, you have written three reviews that are up on the website by the time everyone's hearing this. And those are all new features. And I'm going to review a few more sort of older horror films before Halloween hits as well. So we're still going full steam ahead on the horror train. And it will end on Halloween Day. I promise I will discuss other genres <laughs> as soon as November comes around. I make no such promises. I'd also like to let our listeners know that if you are not subscribed to Sh- Shudder, Ginger Snaps, Ginger Snaps 2 Unleashed, and Ginger Snaps Back the Beginning are all available currently on the world's best streaming service, Tubi. <laughs> I sent y'all a graph the other day of like, I love streaming it. services titles like the size of the library that each one has and to be I felt was like about 10 times more than like the the next competitor down the line. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we've already mentioned to be like five times in this episode, so to be please pay us. And the next time that all three of us are recording together, I'm making you watch a film that is only available on Tubi. So, more Tubi talk to come uh, in November as well. Love it. Tube me up. So excited. <laughs> Tube or not to be. Tube. Oh, no. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Good night. Bye. A domesticated girl, that's all you ask of me. Darling, it is no joke. This is the canthropy. The moon's awake now. With eyes wide open. My body is craving. The hungry. I've been devoting myself to you Monday to Monday and Friday to Friday. Not getting enough retribution or decent incentives to keep me at it. I'm starting to feel just a little abuse like a coffee machine in an office. Uh, so I'm gonna go somewhere closer to get me a lover and tell you about it.